Welcome to the Push Dose Medic Podcast. 912 Ambulance, 75-year-old male, back pain, 211 Silver Hollow Road. We focus on core concepts for the beginner paramedic. 0933-5632. Here's your host, Jaron Jarrell. The temporary beds, it's also your, your long-term beds too, so... I could see using it to do like a IVC SVC and see if they have plenty of fluid there, because if you don't, you definitely want to tank them up for sure. Um, Cause otherwise you're going to have that suck down phenomenon occur where basically, you know, you've got this, these LVADs are set by the docks prior to going in and they can't just go in and adjust them as needed. So whatever they feel like their cardiac output needs to be, their flow needs to be, that's what they're going to set it at. And, you know, a lot of times when you get called as EMS, whether it be a scene call or critical care, it's it's not because their batteries or whatever. Most of the time, they can troubleshoot that stuff. Most of the time, it's, you know, I've had nausea, vomiting, and diarrhea for the last three days. I'm super dehydrated, and so now this thing is showing low flows, and now what do I do type thing. Welcome back, guys, to the Push Dose Medic podcast. Thanks for tuning in this week. As you already know, things have been a little quiet and slow on the podcast platform and also on the Instagram page. If you didn't know that I did move to Colorado to pursue some new dreams in a uh, new career, so things have just been a little slow, and they may continue to be a little slow as I go through orientation and kind of get the feel and get settled in here. Also, an update with the podcast, it will be on the IE Med CME Collective here soon. Episodes will be available to get actually continuing education credits on, so I will keep you guys updated on the progress of that. Today's episode is actually brought to us by one of the IE Med instructors. His name is Dylan. He is actually a co-author of the MCAD book, which is an intensive book that just goes through all the mechanical circulatory assist devices. So if you want to learn more about that more in depth, I definitely recommend picking it up. I'm going to be doing so myself. So sit back and enjoy this talk me and Dylan have about LVADs. Hope you enjoy. When we think about LVADs, we typically get that call like you were just saying, someone that's super dehydrated and you get called out there and you're probably scared because if you're like any most paramedic programs, they really didn't talk a lot about LVADs. If you're lucky, you had a person come in that had an LVAD and they gave a great experience on how it works and what they actually know. Now, when you're discharged from the hospital, your best historian is your patient and the family. They know a lot about LVADs and you'll always hear, grab that black bag. That black bag is going to be your lifeline. It has everything you ever need in it. And like I said, your best historian is going to be that patient. They know pretty much how to troubleshoot any issue with that LVAD besides something that's internal that they can't fix. Yeah. So I completely agree with you. Um, so, uh, you know, your assessment findings and, and when you get on scene with somebody that has an LVAD, you definitely want to ask, and I call it kind of preparing for Armageddon, right? You want to make sure that you have external batteries. You've got, um, extra controllers. Uh, you know, you've got multiple ways to power this thing because if it, goes off or if it loses power for whatever reason. And we've all been in that scenario where we've been transporting in an ambulance and, you know, uh, for whatever reason we have a mechanical failure, a flat tire or, or weather comes in, whatever reason it may be, you definitely want to be prepared to have power to that LVAD. So there's an AC adapter that plugs into the wall. There's actually a DC adapter that can plug into a cigarette lighter uh, kind of port. If you know what I'm talking about in your car, 
So we definitely want to make sure we take those. Uh, sometimes we can run into alarms on the LVAD that has to do with the controller and the controller just simply has gone bad. It needs to be changed out. So there's, you know, patients will have multiple controllers. We want to make sure we have that equipment with us as well. And, you know, to hit on what you said with the, the patient being the best historian, these people have to have education prior to leaving the hospital with this device. So, um, you know, as far as being able to change a battery and troubleshoot the basics, uh, they're normally pretty good at it um, with the exception of, you know, I throw hygiene in there uh, just because with how an LVAD works, you have the driveline. And so that driveline is basically your communication signal between your controller and your pump that's implanted internally. And if you don't have that signal, you don't have an LVAD. Um, and, you know, a lot of folks, um, that's a percutaneous wire. So when you think about that patient that, you know, all our patients are extremely clean and they take a bath every night and, and they take care of their, their dressings and, and so on and so forth. And we know working in EMS, whether it be critical care or not in one EMS, that that's not exactly always true. Uh, so one of the big routes of, of or, or causes of death, rather, with an LVAD long term is going to be your septic patient because these, L, these drive lines get infected. Um, and so you see that happen as well. Uh, but to jump back into being the best historian, if, if you have a question about something, there's two things that I always rely on. Number one, if my patient's conscious and can talk to me, I'm going to talk to them uh, because chances are they can probably give you some education on that device that you don't know. Um, if the patient is not coherent or they're unable to, uh, to make good sense, then there is a, what I like to lovingly refer to um, as a 1-800-HELP-ME-JESUS number on the back of that controller. And what that does is it basically connects you with um, an LVAD nurse uh, 24 hours a day, 365 days a year, and they can actually walk you through kind of the initial management and, uh, and help you uh, with your patient as well. So those are two avenues um, that you have available to you to, to really help drive your uh, not only assessment findings, but your patient care. Yeah. And all, all that stuff is located in that black bag. That's why that's so important. It kind of looks like a camera bag. When this episode comes out, um, I'll go ahead and post it on the Instagram at push dose medic podcast. We'll have a video of, uh, possibly if I can get a video of people changing the batteries and a picture of how this LVAD is actually set up. So you get more of an idea of what the drive line is and how that can cause an infection. Thinking when you were little trying to keep your cast out of the the shower and the water, just think of this, just a wire about as thick as a ink pen coming out of your abdomen. That's controlled to pretty much your lifeline. So when we're thinking LVADs, LVAD, sorry, it's basically a mechanical device that's implanted into your left ventricle. And this is to augment cardiac output. Now these can be two different types. They can be a bridge therapy or a destination therapy. So if you have like a low ejection fraction or you're pretty much advanced heart failure where your heart you need a transplant. This is where you would qualify to get an LVAD. And Dylan, can you kind of explain how they actually work in the body? Yeah. So uh, you actually have, you have bridge to destination, um, bridge to decision, and then bridge to transplant. So th there are patients that either they know they're getting transplanted and they get an LVAD in the interim to boost that cardiac output and give them a functional status. Uh, just because a little bit of how transplant works, it's interesting. You can be on the list for five days. You could be on the list for five years. And there's a lot that goes into it as far as selection for, for an organ such as a heart, 
Um, but some of these patients, it takes them a while to get selected. So that LVAD is a way to kind of restore their quality of life uh, in the interim um, until they're able to, to get that organ. The other thing that you have that you hit on, like you said, is the uh, bridge to or a destination therapy is what it's called. And so destination therapy is, in essence, hey, I know for whatever reason I'm not a transplant candidate or, hey, I don't want a transplant. I want this LVAD. And once this LVAD, you know, goes bad, so do I. Um, and, and that's, you know, the end. Or you have what we call bridge to decision. Um, and with bridge to decision, these are patients that for whatever reason, maybe they haven't been improved yet by or approved rather by insurance to to get the transplant. Maybe they're still mulling it over with their family. Um, and there's some strict criteria as well. Uh, so you talk about stuff like weight. Uh, these these donors can't be or I'm sorry, these recipients can't be overweight. Uh, they can't have a smoking history. They can't be on drugs. So there's a lot of things that they have to prove uh, for a period of time prior to being able to, to be selected for a new organ. Um, but going back into how LVADs work in the body. So basically how I like to think of it is you have this, this pump that's going to be implanted um, in, in the left ventricle. And you also have bivads as well, which are right and left ventricle. So it's, it's kind of an everything augment or both right and left side, but we're going to isolate this to just the left side here. So it's implanted on the left ventricle. And what it does is it has a, a inlet um, that's going to suck blood, uh, and it's more scientific than this, obviously, but in layman's terms, country boy terms, like I like to say, it's going to suck blood out of the left ventricle that's failing and unable to do the work itself. And it's going to put that into uh, basically a motor type system. Think of a, a centrifugal type motor. Um, and what happens is as that blood gets sucked into that, um, that motor then puts that blood under high pressure. Um, and is able to put it into the aorta. And so by displacing that blood from the failing left ventricle that has a poor cardiac output, we're able to, A, boost the cardiac output on the left side uh, by, number one, offloading a failing left ventricle uh, that's unable to pump, and B, improving mean arterial pressure in the aorta. Um, and so then you get an improvement in overall mean arterial pressure, and you also get an improvement in coronary perfusion pressure as well. Um, so that mechanically and physiologically is is how things work with the pump. Um, and obviously, this pump is controlled by the drive line, which is your communication signal from the controller uh, to the actual implanted pump itself. Yeah, I think I uh, find it interesting that you you put it in country boy terms that it's uh, it sucks the blood out of the left ventricle. And that brings up a good point of how dependent an LVAD is on uh, just basically fluid particularly blood. So if you have that patient that's been dehydrated and, you know, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, just think of that left ventricle. You have that, that basically that core that's coming out of the ventricle that's sucking blood and you're just collapsing that ventricle. And that's what you don't want. Yeah. So yeah, you're, you're spot on with that. Actually it's, it's referred to as a term it's called suck down. Um, and so basically if you can picture the left ventricle, that's full of blood, um, you know, if I were to cavitate that pump or, uh, you know, completely suck that ventricle dry, I'm not saying that we take all the blood out of the ventricle, obviously, but if I were to uh, start to take more fluid than what that right side can produce, um, two things are going to happen. Number one, I'm going to develop right side heart failure. And number two, 
because the uh, the right side can't keep up with the demand, I'm then going to basically cause a collapse of that left ventricle for it to, it, it collapses down upon itself and you get kind of what sounds like a, a knocking engine sound um, on auscultation of your patient's uh, LVAD and their heart tones. And so that is a signal that this patient, for whatever reason, is either uh, their fluid depleted or for whatever reason, the right side is not meeting the demands of the left side. And that's what's causing that suck down. And then very soon after that, what you're going to start to get um, is what we call a red alarm. And that's going to be a, one of those critical alarms. Um, and it's going to say low flow. And obviously we have low flow due to the fact we've got no fluid on the left side to give to that pump. So it's very, very important to remember fluids are extremely important. Preload is extremely important, not just in, in uh, what I like to call long-term LVADs, but also in, in your short-term VADs, such as uh, your Impella devices um, and even ECMO patients as well. Yeah, so we can jump right into some of those alarms. I think that's one of your most important alarm um, besides your your basic ones that are usually able to be fixed by the patient, and that's uh, like the driveline disconnect or low battery. So I think the one of the clinical alarms that we have to look out for is that low flow state because they are so dependent on the preload and fluid. Are there any other alarms on an LVAD that you would really want to worry about other than the basic ones that the patient should be able to fix? So, yeah, I mean, obviously you have the, uh, you've got your low flow, you have your disconnect. Um, and, and to be honest as well, you know, your low flow is not just um, because they're preload dependent. It could also be a thrombus um, and it could be uh, a clot that is for whatever reason blocking that travel of blood in the pump. So that's another thing to uh, keep in mind as well. Um, some other things that you think about are your, your common disconnect, your battery disconnect. Uh, there was one case that I can think of um, that was interesting. That was actually a case that happened where a patient was not being careful with their driveline. Uh, they were trying to change their dressings. Um, and in the interim of doing that, they actually cut that driveline and it fractured the driveline. And so, you know, when you have a patient that you show up to and they say, uh, hey, I need to get to so-and-so LVAD center because, you know, I'm going to soon be going into cardiogenic shock. That's that's a patient that you want to listen to and take seriously. Um, and so when that driveline's fractured, you know, now it's now you've got to manage things pharmacologically as to where you had this pump that was doing all this work. Now we've got to get creative and figure out what mixture of pressors and inotropes we're going to be able to utilize in order to maintain this guy's cardiac output till we can get them to the LVAD center. Um, so that's another one that's extremely important to be on the lookout for. Uh, typically your red alarms are what we call the, the critical and hazard alarms. They're going to be um, on your heartmate two and three on the controller. They're going to light up red. And uh, if you've ever heard the most annoying sound in your life, um, that's exactly what it sounds like. It's a long, steady beep uh, that's very, very loud. It will definitely grab your attention. Those are the ones that need to be fixed immediately. And a lot of times uh, what it's caused by is either you have a low flow state or you have a problem with the controller. So one of the most common fixes of that is going to be to just change out that controller. Um, your yellow alarms are going to be 
stuff like, hey, your batteries are getting low. Maybe you have a cable that's disconnected or has become disconnected from the controller. Um, those are things that are going to light up yellow on the uh, on the controller, and there there's going to be an intermittent beeping with that. It's not just a loud, continuous beep. When I think of a red alarm, guys, if, if for firemen and, and women as well, for firemen, um, you know, you think of a pass alarm or a pass device, that's almost exactly as loud as, as what you're going to hear. So it's definitely something that's going to be able to get your attention. And then what they have in that black bag that Jared was so lovingly referring to is there's typically a little troubleshoot guide um, in there that is uh, your common alarms. And they're actually broken up by those hazard alarms versus the uh, the yellow alarms or what are what's also called the advisory alarms. So you can actually utilize that um, and kind of look and see what alarm you're getting and, and how to troubleshoot it. Uh, if you're unable and unsuccessful to do so, that's when you go ahead and call that number and say, hey, what gives? I'm getting this alarm. I've tried X, Y, Z. What else do you have for me? Yeah, and I've actually got one of those... Uh little cards. I don't know where I got it. Not someone's black bag, of course, but probably an LVAD class. But for another reference for that, that's worth downloading on your phone is something called uh, myLVAD.com. It has all of those alarms and what to do and the local numbers to call in your area. So it's a really good resource um, in case you get one of those alarms and you have an unconscious patient and no one else is there to to help you. So I think... No, um, absolutely. They, they recently did put how to treat an LVAD patient in the AHA guidelines um, a few years back. But I do remember in school that through ACLS, we did not go over on how to resuscitate these pe- people at all. I'm embarrassed to say that I actually tried to take a blood pressure on uh, my first LVAD patient. And it was very unsuccessful because I did not have the right tools. So um, we're going to go over this before you make this mistake. Cause it's a little embarrassing when you're trying to take a blood pressure and it just does not come up. Your, uh, your result will throw crazy numbers at you and you won't be able to actually feel a pulse. If you do, it's a very faint pulse and that's due to just how the LVAD is actually set up. It's a continuous flow device. So you usually get no pulse. If you do, it's a very weak pulse and that's somebody I think with a, just a higher EF and usually a low SPO two. So can you explain, Dylan, how we actually get a pulse on these guys or if we can in the pre-hospital world? Yeah, yeah. So uh, you make a great point um, and, and don't feel bad because early in my career, you know, I, I didn't have the education either. So um, I've definitely tried to take that blood pressure as well. And, and you kind of have to go back through time, right? So you have your first LVAD that was that was out there um, and it was a pulsatile device. And what it was, was it was basically a pneumatic pump that would collapse this uh it would collapse this chamber cause a suction type effect and then as that pump or that reservoir got full just like the left ventricle that pneumatic pump would then pump that blood so they were extremely bulky they're very uncomfortable they're extremely loud and it was a pulsatile device but as technology developed and and became more sound uh you know things tend to get smaller and they tend to get more efficient um so with the heartmate two and three the devices are a lot smaller and they're what's called continuous flow. And simply what that means is exactly what Jaren was saying is it's going to continuously suck blood um, out of the ventricle at all times. Um, it's not going to be a pulsatile device where you have your systolic phase and your diastolic phase. And the heart will have that, obviously, because it's very important to remember as well that the patient is going to have some native heart function, right? So 
if you feel a stronger pulse, they may have a little bit stronger native heart function than somebody that has an EF of five or 8% without their LVAD. Um, and, and you feel hardly anything at all, or you can't hear anything at all. And so the reason why your blood pressure doesn't work is because it's based upon those cycles of systole and diastole. And with it being a continuous flow device, we think about what we have in our assessment um, in order to measure something like that. And you think mean arterial pressure, right? So the mean pressure in our arteries at all times. And so that we're going to be able to measure with our LVAD patients. So the way that you would do that is you just take a manual cuff, apply it just like you would with your automated cuff. And then what we're going to utilize is just a very basic Doppler. You're going to take that Doppler and use that uh, and put it at the same location you would your your, uh, stethoscope. And then what I'm looking for, what I'm wanting to hear is kind of like a a whooshing sound. And what that is, is it's nothing more than turbulent blood flow. Um, And that is actually your mean arterial pressure. Um, And when I say I'm looking to hear that sound, it's as I'm taking air out of that cuff, I'm waiting for that sound to pick up. Obviously, if I've aired the cuff all the way up, I should hear nothing because I'm then cutting off the pressure. But as that pressure starts to uh, reveal itself, I should start to hear something. And that is going to be your mean arterial pressure. That's extremely important with LVAD patients because that's how we're going to assess them, number one. And number two, that's how we're going to treat our LVAD patients as well. So typically you like a a mean arterial pressure somewhere around 60 to 65, and that seems pretty low. But for LVAD patients, it's really not that um, extreme to have that, you know, greater than 60 or greater than 65 is typically what we shoot for. I don't actually know any services that carry a Doppler um, for you POCUS guys. I guess you can use your Doppler function on your uh, butterflies or GEs. But what other tools you can use is what we what we use when we first walk up on scene. Obviously, if they're unconscious, uh, it'd be a little bit harder. But general mentation, um, if you saw a post uh, on Instagram not too long ago, I talked about cap refill that is so underutilized and so important to check. And of course, one of my favorites, capnography, if they have low perfusion, you know, that can be an indicator that they could have a lower blood pressure. And obviously, you're historian, so... Let's go back to that guy that's just having a bad day and is at a low flow state. So he's um, he's got norovirus, um, vomiting, diarrhea everywhere, and we show up on scene and find him unconscious. Um, we see his controller belt on him. We know he's an LVAD patient because we see the drive line. How do we exactly resuscitate this patient? How do I know when to start CPR? Because obviously they don't have a pulse. Let's say this guy has a really low EF, so he's non-pulsatile. What, what are indicators to know to start CPR and how do we go about resuscitating someone with the LVAD? Uh, so that's a great question. Um, I think you work, you know, with your, your basics that you have. Um, if you can take, and maybe in Texas where I'm located, it's a little bit different, but most of your ALS crews, uh, they carry just some form of, of uh, Doppler just because of uh, monitoring fetal heart tones. So you can use that. You can take a map, kind of see where you're at. If they have an altered mental status, obviously, I'd start with taking a blood sugar. Um, we're also going to look at skin color and condition. Are they pale? Or are they cyanotic? What does their, their SpO2 look like? Um, and then at that point, I'm probably going to give just a proactive fluid bolus. Uh, and, you know, if they are in cardiac arrest, you're definitely going to notice a low flow state because they're in cardiac arrest. So a lot of people 
don't know um, and haven't been told, you know, I'll ask the question out there for, for the folks that are listening. What if I have the scenario that Jaren's giving and I do see an arrhythmia on my monitor? What if I see V-fib or what if I see VTAC uh, with a pulse? Is this a problem because they have an LVAD? And the answer that I hope you guys are coming up with is yes, it is a problem. Because remember with the LVAD, we're just talking about the left side. So if I'm in a, a tachycardic rhythm or a non-perfusing rhythm, is my right side of my heart going to be able to give me adequate blood flow to the left side, which is going to let this LVAD work correctly? And the answer to that would be no, it's not. So in the case of if they had a BIVAD, right, if they had a right and left ventricular assist device, like something like total artificial heart, uh, so on and so forth, then sure, that might not be a big deal. Um, but if they are just an LVAD patient and they experience some sort of non-perfusing rhythm, that's a huge deal because we know as patients become tachycardic and, and they're in, you know, V-fib, V-tac, the right side's not going to be able to give enough volume to the left side. And that's going to cause a huge problem for that LVAD to be able to function correctly. Yeah. And just so to touch on that, something um, to keep in mind. I've heard in a few classes that kind of contraindicates that, and I'm glad you cleared that up. That's that's a common question. So we have this artificial, we'll just basically say artificial heart that's, you know, perfusing us, but we see VTAC or VFib and people are like, well, no, that's not too bad of an issue because we still have forward flow. But I think what people aren't considering is, like you said, that right side. If we're totally, if we're fibbing or tacking out on the other side of the heart, we're creating more of a problem for that left side that's trying to compensate. So I'm glad you touched on that to clear that up. Yeah, no problem. I mean, it just it boils down to your basic, uh, you know, mechanics of the heart, right? I've got to be able to have that diastolic filling pressure. Uh, Frank Starling says, you know, the greater the the fill, the greater the contraction to it, or greater the stretch, rather, to a degree, the greater contractile force. And obviously, if my heart is clocking along at 150, 160, 180, then I'm not going to be able to get that diastolic filling pressure. I can't get that forceful traction on the right side and I'm not going to have any return to the left side to give to that LVAD. And that's where the problem lies. Exactly. So let's say they are in VTAC and um, unconscious. Are we going to, are we allowed to shock an LVAD patient? You know, it's, they have an electric motor inside their body. Is that, is that something we can shock? Yeah. So uh, electricity is completely safe for the LVAD, whether it be defibrillation, whether it be synchronized cardioversion, whether it be pacing, um, the electric part, uh, electricity part rather is completely safe for LVAD patients. There's no contraindication there. Um, where you get into trouble as far as resuscitation goes is obviously your CPR. Um, and there's different trains of thought out there and I'll just tell you mine, uh, and you can kind of take it for what it's worth. If, if I do start CPR on this patient because they're in a non-perfusing rhythm and they're indeed in cardiac arrest, Provided that I've given a fluid bolus, I've tried to troubleshoot alarms because there's definitely going to be an alarm. Um, and, and I've tried to go with my initial resuscitation. The alternative to not doing CPR on somebody is obviously what? Uh, you know, it's obviously that they're going to continue to be in cardiac arrest and they're ultimately going to die. If I do CPR, maybe I'm able to get something back. But at the same time now where this implanted pump is, maybe I'm causing a lot of trauma to that area. 
Maybe I'm causing things to tear and break loose. Um, and maybe I'm causing a lot of bleeding. And that's something to hit on uh, just because with bleeding, it is so important. You know, these patients are the type that if you have that trauma patient or, or not even a trauma patient, let's say we have Granny Goodnight that's in a an MVA and maybe it's a, a low speed to moderate speed MVA. She seems fine. She's walkie talkie. She's on an LVAD. Uh, one thing I can guarantee you that she's on with that LVAD is a lot of anticoagulants. And so if she's on a lot of blood thinners, this is somebody that you should have a pretty decent index of suspicion that they could have some internal bleeding. Uh, so LVAD patients for me are, are patients that I typically am going to take and get them checked out or at least try to talk them into it because I know they're on uh, those anticoagulant medications and they are at risk for that. Um, so that's the problem you run into with the CPR. It's kind of, you know, you're screwed if you do, you're screwed if you don't. But the ultimate thing is, if I do nothing, then I'm not going to fix anything. And, and therefore, I'm not giving my patient a chance. So there's different trains of thought out there, but that ultimately is mine. Yeah, exactly. And that, I think that's the general consensus through most of the classes and what I think as well. Um, if you do dislodge something, if something goes on inside the body, it, at least they have a chance to get rushed to the OR and get that fixed. If you don't do anything and the body's expired, there's really nothing, nothing coming back from that. So if you start CPR, um, of course, go through your, your steps first, make sure they do have enough fluid, make sure they are completely pulseless, make sure they're actually dead first and then start the CPR. Um, as far as pad placement on these guys, um, as long as you're not directly over the pump, I believe pad pace placement is okay just normal up top and down bottom. Maybe your uh, secondary pad needs to be more mid axillary so it doesn't go over the pump. I'll have a picture of where these pumps usually sit, but they usually sit right below the apex of the heart, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, that's correct. Um, and then some other things to, to keep in mind as it falls into resuscitation, uh, you know, you go the opposite way with this too. So say you have a patient that they've got chest pain um, and, and we typically, you know, go straight to, Hey, we need to give nitro for this chest pain. I would consider, um, using a little bit of critical thinking because what we also know that nitroglycerin is going to do is drop preload. Um, and with these patients being so preload dependent, nitroglycerin is not something that I would want to give to maybe every single LVAD patient that I didn't think or did think they need nitro. This would be one of those case-by-case -case basis scenarios, and I'm going to really need to believe they need nitroglycerin. Um, I may even go as far as to either contact my med control or contact the OVAD coordinator on the controller and say, hey, this patient's having chest pain. Here's their mean arterial pressure. You know, if I give nitro, is that going to be something that's, that we need to watch out for? Because believe it or not, a lot of the answers to these questions are very basic. Um, you know, you call and say, hey, my LVAD is saying that there's low flow. Uh, they're going to tell you to drink an eight ounce glass of water. No kidding, uh, because we know water is going to boost that preload and they are so preload dependent. So some of these things can be simple fixes. You know, you circle back around to POCUS, which I think has done a lot for assessment in EMS, both critical care and, and 911 EMS. But if you have that available to you, that would be a great tool to be able to just look and assess for any kind of cardiac activity if I'm, uh, you know, believing that these patients are in cardiac arrest. 
So maybe I do a quick look at the heart. Do I have any activity going on there? No, I see nothing. Then we know, hey, this is this is straight up cardiac arrest. But there are going to be those other indicators out there. And, and it basically comes down to just use a very good patient assessment um, to be able to kind of guide you in the right direction that you need to go. Yeah, those are all really good points. I, I like how you uh, mentioned that all these solutions are really simple. And I think your first LVAD patient is super scary, even if they're stable and they just feel kind of weak and they want to go to the hospital. They're just super scary. But after you transport a few of them, you realize that most of this is super simple. Yeah, it's a high tech device that's attached to the heart and it can get kind of wild with those alarms. But every solution is right there at your fingertips for the most part. Either your patient can tell you or it's right in one of those uh, in those handouts that are in that bag. And like you said, if there's always a question that you can't find, you can either call medical direction or that local LVAD number that's on the back of the bag or attached to the device. Definitely. So are there any medication considerations we need to worry about with LVADs? Are there any medications that won't work or are harmful to the LVAD? I wouldn't say, I wouldn't say not work. Um, I would, I would say again, and I know I've harped on this and beat this dead horse, but anything that's going to reduce preload, I'd be careful with stuff like diuretics. Uh, obviously, because that's going to reduce your preload. I'd be careful with stuff like nitroglycerin um, and other nitrates and dilators because that's also going to drop your pressure. Uh, Those can cause problems. And then it also, again, if, if, you know, um, things go wrong and for whatever reason, this LVAD is not functioning, it's going to be very important for you to be well-versed with stuff like inotropes. So dibutamine, bilirinone, your pressors, norepinephrine, epinephrine, uh, you're going to have to pharmacologically manage these patients until you can get them to a uh, facility that's able to correct this mechanical device. Um, you know, I, I can't speak from experience that I've had that happen to me with an, a what I'd like to call a long-term LVAD patient, uh, but I have had it happen to me on uh, multiple Impella patients, which are short-term VADs, uh, work pretty much the same way. And when those things don't work like they're supposed to, you really have to get creative with uh, what medications that you're going to give in order to get a more forceful contraction, um, a better mean arterial pressure, and ultimately a better ejection fraction. Yeah. And we'll, uh, we'll try to touch on impellas in another episode. They're also a really cool device and they're kind of upcoming as well. I think more used um, compared to other assist devices. Are there any other key points you want to go over with uh, LVADs? We've kind of hit a lot of them, how to really take a blood pressure, the key points in resuscitation, and what we've been harping on is just that preload dependence and even a little bit of POCUS knowledge. Is there anything else we we should know about LVADs? You know, I I really think that as long as you are using, uh, you know, you go back to KISS medicine, keep it simple, stupid. Uh, You know, you have a good patient assessment. You've got the, uh, the references and the resources available to you, whether you're using um, just the, the HeartMate's um, alarm guide, whether you're calling the number, whether you have something built. A lot of uh, protocols now are electronic. So I know in most of the electronic protocols, I've seen that quick reference guide is in there in the back as part of uh, some additional resources. So as long as you have that, um, you keep a cool head. And it's like you said, a lot of these solutions can be simple. Um, you know, remember, these, these patients are meant to live with this device. They're meant to stay at home with this device. 
So don't treat it as this person has C4 strapped to their chest. Treat it as this is normal uh, for this patient to have this device based upon what they have going on. And as long as you have the correct tools and references in place to be able to act, if anything happens, then you're going to be set up for success. I feel like the big thing, you know, knowing how to take an adequate patient assessment, using your hands, putting your hands on your patient, um, and then knowing that mean arterial pressure is king in an LVAD is extremely important when it comes to patient management. Other than that, um, you know, I think I think you did a great job of hitting on the main points for uh, transport, not only in critical care, but also for 911 EMS. Uh, one thing I'll add for the 911 guys that are uh, fire department or, or EMS, um, typically what you'll see, um, and I know geographically it's different with each area, but if you have a patient that's released on an LVAD device, they typically, the hospital will reach out or they're supposed to and say, hey, this person has an LVAD in your response area. And then that should then go to dispatch. So in a perfect world, when you're dispatched, it should be, hey, the call notes are this person is an LVAD. Um, so then you know who they are. Uh, and you also are able to kind of start to look at some resources on the way to the call, and you're just a little bit more prepared. Um, so those are definitely some things you could consider if that's not a thing in your area. Maybe you go to your EMS chief or your captain and say, hey, you know, these patients are few and far between. Maybe we need to track this a little bit better. Um, and other than that, I, I think you did a great job hitting all the points. Yeah, and uh, on top of uh, having those patients located in your CAD, I would I would reach out to some of them, have maybe a representative uh, ask them if they want to come in for a class um, when you go over LVADs. Having someone there that actually has an LVAD that can tell you about it kind of makes you feel a lot more comfortable and being able to assess the patient in a non-serious uh, serious way um, instead of being on a call and assessing them, just actually them standing there stable, being able to kind of play with the LVAD and know exactly how it works. It makes you feel better at the end of the day. Yeah, no, that's, that's a great point, man. I, I honestly, um, you can do that. You can reach out to the hospital. Uh, hospitals love education. They love education outreach. So, you know, if you're a local fire department and you call and say, Hey, look, we're looking for LVAD training. Um, and you call an actual LVAD capable center, I guarantee you they're going to be able to either put something together for you or say, hey, we're having this class. Come sit in. Um, you know, outreach is huge. So uh, those are definitely resources you have available to you to to kind of prepare for this call before it actually happens. So I think that wraps everything up. I hope uh, I hope we hit all the main points. I think we did. A lot of people reached out and said they knew nothing about LVADs on Instagram. So I think that that gives you a good idea. This will at least give you some intro education. I would suggest uh, going to your chief training officer and just asking them for some more education. Having a good LVAD class uh, biannually is is definitely going to help, um, especially if you have those patients in your response area. So I want to thank Dylan for coming on. He's a super smart guy. He knows all about these assist devices. We'll probably try to have him on again to maybe discuss impellas or maybe something more complicated like balloon pumps. So if you guys have any more questions about this, just reach out to me on Push Dose Medic Podcast on Instagram and we'll get those questions answered. So again, I want to thank Dylan for joining us and I hope you have a good day.